But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, and today we're journeying through the tumult and triumph of an icon, Napoleon Bonaparte. Born in the cradle of Corsica, rising through the ranks in Paris, Napoleon's story is one of sheer will clashing with destiny. We'll trace his path from the artillery fields of the revolution to the throne of France and finally to the lonely island of his last breath. An emperor, a conqueror, and a fallen hero. From the echelons of power to a shadow demise, his legacy is as complex as it is enduring. In this episode, we'll explore the man behind the legend, the myths surrounding his life, and the battles that defined it. Stay with us as we unfold the saga of a titan who shaped the world and then was shaped by his own fall. The canvas of history awaits, and Napoleon's tale begins now, right here on the History in Motion podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the History in Motion podcast, where we'll be talking about the great Napoleon Bonaparte. And in today's episode, we're going to be splitting his life into two separate sections, because I think as we started to dive into a lot of this research, there is a lot of content on him. He's a very well-documented person from history. So he's known for obviously being one of the greatest generals of all time, but also the emperor of France, kind of bringing France out of the revolution and really starting what many consider to be the first true world war. So there's a lot to cover with him. But today we're going to just focus on Napoleon, the person, the the politician, the emperor, who he is in his personal life. And then next week, we'll focus more on his military genius and some of the details around his failed invasion of Russia and some of his great battles, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff we can talk about. But today we're just going to kind of focus on who he is as the man, go through a proper bio, because like I said, there is a lot to, to talk about when it comes to Napoleon. Yeah, I feel like we wouldn't be doing his his bio and his leadership skills much justice if we just tried to encapsulate it all in one episode. You know, just having done the biography of uh, of his life, um, I came into it with you know, very little knowledge about Napoleon. And I think the more I got into it, and, uh, you know, we had this conversation offline, which was that, you know, I think to do it justice really requires parsing out those kind of two realities. Otherwise, we'd be talking for about three hours. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's uh, There's so much detail. There's so much to talk about. And I think you don't want to overlook his rise to power, his personal life, his genius, but then you can't overlook his military genius as well, because many consider him to be maybe the greatest general of all time, if not, you know, it's top three, top five, when you're talking about you know, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, and, and those types of people. So he's on this pedestal that really not many other people can can be on. So yeah, you don't really want to kind of jazz over any of those pieces. So I think to get started, though, we need to kind of set the scene where the world that Napoleon's coming into. And so we've talked about the French Revolution a little bit when we talked about Marie Antoinette. So we'll give you guys a quick kind of overview of that. And then we'll get into Napoleon's life. So the French Revolution of 1789 brought down the centuries old regime of absolute monarchy and privileged nobility. So 
we say 1789, that's kind of when the height of the revolution happened, but this is actually going on for decades mm-hmm. all across the country with widespread violence, widespread attempts to make change, but really just not having like that proper figurehead that's able to lead the people into a new I guess, kind of world like we saw, um, you know, in the US or we'll see a century later in Russia where, you know, Lenin comes in and he's won the revolution and he takes over power. Here is not really a true centralized revolutionary forces. Everything kind of just doesn't really come together and then becomes very, very violent. The kind of the principles of the revolution are very similar to what we see in America, where it's based on the principles of individual liberty, equal rights, um, popular sovereignty. So really just getting rid of the church and the nobility with having all the power and giving it back to the people. And so it's very similar to what we see um, in the French Revolution, where church and birthright had way, way less of an impact on society. But like I was saying, we had a much different outcome in this case when it comes to the French Revolution. So over the course of the revolution, there's a period known as the Reign of Terror, where somewhere between 35,000 and 45,000 people were executed at the guillotine, and then over 350,000 people were arrested. So 350,000 people were arrested. And the thing here is we're not even mentioning civilian deaths from riots, soldiers being killed in riots. You know, the numbers are into the hundreds of thousands at that point. So this is just a very, very bloody time for France, which sees the guillotine actually be invented because they weren't able to execute people as quick. And they saw it as a more, you know, humane way of, of chopping someone's head off, which is just bizarre to, to say. say right? yeah. Like 35, 45,000. Uh, maybe I'm just morbid, but um, the thought group, I'm like, like you got to find an efficient way to do that, I guess. And, you know, here comes the guillotine to, you know, support a much more optimized way to start beheading, you know, anyone who you think is a counter-revolutionary. It's like a, yeah, it's almost like industrialized executions or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah, which is weird because you're like, yeah, we have a capacity to execute so many people to, per day. How many guillotines do we need? It's like really like early stage industrial engineering or something, which bizarre on so many levels. But two people that actually meet the guillotine are King Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette, which we talked about in a previous episode. So this is not just, hey, we're going to take over and force a constitutional monarchy. This is fully removing the nobility and the royal family from France altogether. So they can't come back and try to um, take power again. So throughout the period of the revolution, the the violence is in the disorder across the country is unbelievable. Like the thing is, it's different factions in different areas trying to take power. Again, mass violence, looting, shortages of food and other necessities. And some historians have actually said that France was at this point a failed state. It really just didn't have any government. It was just kind of a bunch of factions all over the place trying to figure out what was going on. And then Paris itself just being a complete disaster when it came to violence and riots and all these sort of things. So eventually the revolutionary leaders get together and decide that they actually want to go to war against the European powers, which is a bit of a strange concept when you're really you really haven't got your feet set with this new revolution yet. But they end up doing that and it's a disaster for France. And there's a lot of anti-revolutionaries who are loyal to the royal family leave France and join up with the Austrians and other countries to try and invade France and reestablish the monarchy. So there's this like almost like a mini civil war happening within France. And then you also have just, again, you know, you have a war on top of it, which means all the, all the money that the country has is going towards the war. And you have all this, this violence that's going on. It's just, again, that that failed state comment just keeps coming up and up. So you get this massive military expansion and more and more unrest. It's it's not a great place to be, but Robespierre, who was 
I guess I will say the de facto leader of the revolution. It didn't end well for him, but he realized something quite early. And he said, you know, hey, look, we're doing this, going through this military expansion. We're trying to grow, um, you know, grow our borders in that with all of this unrest. We might have a Julius Caesar slash Oliver Cromwell type of person come in who can ascend through the army, you know, become very popular through winning all these battles and then potentially topple our Republican kind of regime, which excellent foreshadowing for him because it's precisely what happens. But what happens is, and Robespierre was right, this created a power vacuum within France. There was the opportunity for a lot of young men who weren't of noble birth or who didn't actually have those types of opportunities to forge a career within the army by merit at this point. Before it was you could get to a certain rank and sorry, you weren't nobility, so you can't be an officer. You can't ascend to be a general in leading um, armies. This is a great chance for anybody within the country who's just incredibly talented to rise up through the ranks to become a general. But then on top of that, now you have this power vacuum and potentially a great general couldn't have see the opportunity to seize power. So Robespierre was definitely correct. The revolution created this opening and all it really needed was someone to step into that ring and we'll, we'll see who that is uh, very shortly. Yeah, the foresight on, on Robespierre's part to be able to kind of have a keen understanding of the power vacuum and the environment at that time, you know, it it really just goes to show, and, and you hear about these kind of examples even in the modern era, right? Like a power vacuum being a great opportunity for a driven, charismatic leader to kind of take this chaos around them and, you know, this fomentation of, of the populace and be able to kind of galvanize it into a directive force. You know, we've seen countless examples of that in in other parts of history, you know, uh, modern, some pre-modern. And I think, you know, like the more we dive into these conversations, it's something that always kind of, you know, gut checks me is that, you know, we're talking what, 250, 300 years ago, and you could replace some of these titles with modern day leaders. And, you know, you'd still have a very, very similar kind of situation. Yeah, I don't think we've ever seen a, a dictator or someone come in where it was like, everything was fantastic. And the country was running <laughs> exactly, great. And then this right? dictator yeah. showed up and everyone was like, well, he's pretty great. We should follow <laughs> him it's always yeah it's coming from like we talked um, about hitler last week and it wasn't yep. germany wasn't flourishing when yep. <laughs> when hitler showed up and he actually specifically with hitler i remember us talking about he actually was getting worried because germany was actually improving economically and that's yes. when he launched yeah, his yeah. coup because he's like yeah. if it gets too good i'm gonna have you know Work. my whole it's spiel is yelling about yeah. how terrible things are right <laughs> so yeah it's you gotta have so many things line up and obviously with napoleon there's the brilliance that we'll get into, but he needed this power vacuum. He may have just been another general who won a bunch of battles, but mm-hmm. really fell to the wayside of history and yep. didn't become, you know, the legend that he is today. So I think like from a revolutionary perspective, Paul, you know, like, and I think we mentioned it offline before we jumped on uh, to record, but it's such a chaotic period in history for France at this time, right? And I think this is one of the things about this particular episode where we really have to be careful about, you know, the level of detail we get into because we can get pigeonholed very quickly into, you know, the vast amount of activities and chaos that's happening around France. And, you know, if we take the scope even farther because of the impact uh, the other European powers are having, it, it just makes for such a dynamic context, right? Like to be able to pin down and scope out this conversation well, I think was something that I kind of struggled with early on when I was doing like the, the biography research for Napoleon. And, you know, when you level set that and then you add it against the backdrop of the French Revolution, I, 
it, it really was, you know, quite apparent as soon as I started digging down into Napoleon's kind of background about him as a leader. And I know we'll get into this a bit more in this episode. And then I think we'll really get into it in, in, in the follow up episode of his, his, again, his military prowess is what we know him for. But again, I think there's, there's so many aspects of his leadership and tenacity that kind of just come through his biography and his decision making. Uh, and, and coming to this particular episode kind of green prior to the research, like that really stuck out. Yeah, I think it's funny you say that because we all know him as the great general and all the pictures and paintings you see of him on a horse Mm -hmm. leading his troops. But yeah, you start to see the backroom dealings. You start to see this obsessive man who always has to be moving forward. And it's, it's funny, like comparison to Julius Caesar is so apt just because you think of Julius Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered or Alexander Mm -hmm. the Great saying like, I've conquered the world and there was, there's nothing left for me to conquer. Where with these types of people, it's, there's always got to be something more. There's always a drive. And for Napoleon, military conquest is definitely one of those, but you see so much that he does from not just a political standpoint, but he's passing a bunch of laws. He's He's shaping France into the really creating it in, in a sense where it has the opportunity to become that modern superpower that it ends up becoming. Yep. And then he's to look around Europe to today and all the different different areas that he's had an impact in, not just militarily, but, you know, oh, why does a country do this? Well, Napoleon in 1812 put in a law that said this, this and this, and it's just stuck and it still exists today. All of those sort of things just kind of roll up into a very just incredible but also not obviously not perfect person we will start to see a lot of his flaws and all the differences with him but yeah it's uh it is kind of just setting that backdrop as you were mentioning as well of you know germany's still not unified and that always is so tough to me because it's state of bavaria and you have all these little places that seem to be changing all the time and then Mm -hmm. austria i can never wrap my head around how big or small that empire is because (laughs) it's always changing and italy's still not unified so you have all these like little states kind of all around europe and Really outside of France, Spain, and maybe England, you don't really have much cohesiveness. It's very much a kind of a a mess of different little things. So yeah, it is quite a complex period in time. But um, I think that's kind of what makes I think Napoleon so great is to be able to wrangle that, you know, dysfunction and be able to bring some order to it, maybe not for a very long time, but be able to do it, I think is what kind of sets him apart. Yeah, 100%. And I think one of the the key takeaways from from what you just said, and at least it kind of sticks out to me is that, you know, this backdrop of nation making that's happening across the European continent. Um, the tension, the struggle to be able to have this kind of unification um, across the board for you know countries that we know today as these kind of nation states versus what they were in the context that we're discussing today, which are you know small pockets of, of cultural or regional identities that are kind of vying for um, their own viability across you know what they stand for and how they're kind of going to rise up and, and, and consolidate their power. For sure, and I think maybe this is a great segue as we look at a little island called Corsica, which yeah, for the longest time was part of Genoa and then for whatever reason it becomes French and then like that's always the question I've always asked is why is there this French island in the middle of the Mediterranean surrounded by um, Italian land and it was because the Genoese were broken had to sell the land off to somebody and it ends up going to France but what if it didn't go to France? What if it exactly. went somewhere else? What yeah. if they just kept it because yeah. they found some money under their mattress? Like you never know think how quickly um, history can change. But thankfully for the Genoese, they sold it to the French. And, you know, thankfully or slash unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, it kind of opened the door for the man of the hour. Yeah. And I think and again, you know, his life in Corsica, I 
obviously played a pretty key role into the person that he would become. So, you know, we'll kick it off. We'll start with his, you know, uh, you know, birth and early childhood. So he's Napoleon Bonaparte. He's born in 1769 in Corsica. Um, I, I, I am always careful of saying anyone's destined to do anything because that seems, you know, pretty, uh, you know, there's kind of the, the fatalistic, inevitable view. But in many ways, I think he did have an upbringing that made him a bit more rugged and rough given the island that he grew up on. So um, his Corsican heritage and his relatively short Stature, uh, which is bring up a, is brought up a lot in his biographies, which I think is quite funny. Uh, we've all heard of the myth of the Napoleon complex or, or little man syndrome, um, which you know often I would assume made him a target of ridicule. But you know, one thing that we should take away that I think will be um, quite evident is that you know he was tenacious and he was ambitious and he rarely ever wavered. So he's born in August uh, to Carlo uh, Carlo Bonaparte and Letizia uh, Romolino. He's the second of eight children. So the Bonaparte family was a minor Corsican family in terms of their nobility. They weren't extremely wealthy, but they had a respected position in Corsican society. Um, his father uh, was a, at, at first he was a, I guess, a loyalist to the the. The Genoese, but once it was kind of, you know, pretty much set in stone that the French were going to take over, quickly, you know, adjusted uh, alignment with uh, with his new French allies and was able to kind of leverage that opportunity to become, you know, much more well embedded. And then, you know, obviously the French privileges that came along with it. This actually drove a bit of a wedge, from my understanding, between him and his father, because obviously there's a bit of an identity crisis that's going on for Napoleon at this time. You know, he, he grew up in a Genoese, you know, Italian uh, you know, island, but then French come in and take part of it. And he, you know, I think there's this growing resentment between him and his father about, you know, how he could switch on his allies so quickly to be able to, you know, leverage the French, uh, you know, the privileges that came with aligning himself with the, you know, attacker that eventually took over Corsica. Yeah, I think he's... He's a Corsican national, like nationalist yes, kind of, he yeah. loves his, he loves yeah. his, I guess we could call it country. He loves his land. And the thing that I found that was interesting is I didn't realize how Italian Napoleon actually is. Like he spoke with an Italian accent or a Corsican accent, which was based on essentially a dialect of Italian. And his name was actually Napoleone for years until he actually oh, changed wow. it yeah. later in yeah. life. And I think his last name was Bonaparte. So he's, he's an Italian. He has an Italian name. He speaks with an Italian accent but he loves Corsica so much and you're right I, that relationship where his father is almost selling out to the enemy a little bit as it's seen but then again I think it's just kind of you're a young man you're ambitious you love your country you think you know how can someone you know the world there really is you don't really see the world outside of your small island exactly but his father is saying well you know I can do more good if I get a seat in the French um, parliament or kind of in, within that inner circle and potentially do a lot of good for my homeland. But yeah, I can see how that's hard to see from, from a young man. Uh, yeah, perspective 100 percent, right and i think if we like kind of look at corsica as a place so it's 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 an island in the mediterranean you know it's uh, assumably quite rugged it's shaped by its unique culture with this constant strife of an island that transitioned from genoese rule to becoming a french territory so it was officially ceded to france in 1768 and to your point paul like you know young napoleon was exposed to this to a lot of nationalist sentiments with many corsicans initially resisting french control as a kid he's uh, often described as willful willful and stubborn 
um, his mom, uh, Letizia, was a strict disciplinarian, a very hardy woman. She, I think she had eight kids in total, but she had 13 births, which, you know, um, really speaks to her tenacity. And it said that she was the only person that Napoleon truly feared throughout his life. And despite her sternness, you know, she played an instrumental role in ensuring that her children received good education opportunities to advance in life. And I think, you know, that sentiment for wanting to, you know, provide for your kids, like, I think this is where, you know, the the parental figure and, and, and goals that she had set really are going to catapult uh, Napoleon into what he ends up becoming, uh, you know, ultimately. So, in terms of education, and I think this this is a this is a crucial aspect of his life. So he's sent to mainland France for education at the age of nine. He first attended school in uh, Atun before moving to the military academy. So he's separated uh, from his family, and he's confronted by his classmates who often mocked him for his Corsican accent and his heritage. So. Paul, I think you nailed it with like, uh, you know, how French is he? You know, what is his identity? Where does he kind of fit in? You can see this kind of internal struggle happening. And then obviously, it's a weakness that's picked on by his uh, his peers. Uh, so this, you know, he becomes somewhat introverted, and he immerses himself in his studies. And during these formative years, you know, he develops a keen interest in history, especially reading about the ancient civilizations of Roman Greece. He's particularly enamored with stories of great military leaders like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. So his early fascination kind of has this, uh, you know, foreshadow of his later ambitions and the grand vision he had for himself. And in terms of hobbies and interests, you know, he was in, he kind of like chess. So you're seeing the strategy element. He also loved to write. He penned a series of short stories, essays, and even, uh, even uh, a novella during his younger years. So you can see like in, at his early life without getting too much into the detail and, and doing, you know, too much inference, but there's a huge mix of cultural influences that are probably, you know, creating some internal tension about who he is, where he sits in the world and what is his identity. Um, and then you have his educational experience in France and, you know, the deep bond with his family. Obviously, Obviously, they combined, you know, with his personal interests in history and strategy that I think would really, you know, lay the foundation for the formidable leader and emperor you know, he was ultimately going to become. Definitely. Like he's he's doing his homework figuratively and, and literally, yeah, literally reading up on these these great people and understanding the playbook of what eventually he will lean on to to seize power and become emperor of France. But also he's just insanely curious, which I think we see with a lot of great generals, they they know the history, they know the terrain that they're fighting on, they know the enemy like the back of their hand. Yep. This is, I think, one of the hallmarks of a lot of these great leaders is this obsession with just knowledge and learning and being one step ahead of their enemy because... At the end of the day, this is still a world where Prince whatever of somewhere is given control of 60,000 troops and has to rely on subordinates to do certain things. But ultimately, they're still in control where Napoleon is probably the smartest person on the battlefield and he's in control of everything. Yep. Um, I think that that changes things a lot and is a big wake up call for a lot of the Europeans. Yeah, 100%. And I think a great segue into his uh, his studies at the military like college in, in Paris. So this is a historic building complex and in Paris, France, it was founded in 1750. So its its sole purpose was training military officers. Today, it still hosts military training and it still holds a various like military training programs. Um, but his first time is a notable chapter in his life. So the institution designed to provide military officers obviously really influenced you know the success he would have later on in his life. So he enters the Royal Military College in Paris in May of 1784. He's admitted due to his uh, his noble status which he acquired thanks to the French takeover. And his family is not wealthy, right? But they are well off. And this kind of plays a weird strain because his most of his peers are much more wealthier than he is. So he's in this weird kind of dynamic 
dynamic where he fits into a certain degree, but not necessarily on the same level of the other students that are there. And typically the program at the college was two years um, again, but however, due to the financial constraints following the death of his father, Napoleon had to complete his course in one year. So his ambition, his determination, you know, were evident. He was a diligent student. He focused primarily on mathematics and geography, which were subjects that were crucial for artillery, which he would later choose as his arm of service. At school, um, it seems like he felt like a bit of an outsider. You know, again, it goes back to he was Corsican at a French university, uh, French college. His accent marked him very differently. You know, he stood out. His relative poverty in comparison to his peers also set him apart. And, you know, he continues to feel this alienation that, you know, may and I would say likely only intensified his drive and ambition to prove himself. And then despite his shortened period of study, he actually was able to graduate 42nd out of 58 students uh, the following year. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Lafayre Artillery Regiment. His strong foundation, artillery tactics and strategy from the military college played a crucial role in his early military successes that would help kind of build the image and story and the success of you know him as of him as a leader. And you know, we'll get into this shortly after, but the siege of Toulon in 1793 is where it kind of makes his first uh, uh, headway into being the military leader and you know really showing his military prowess early in his life. I think too. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like artillery now is starting to become, it's not a brand new thing, but it's becoming much more mainstream and becoming yep. more of that essential piece to kind of everything that happens within warfare at this point. Yep. And again, it's just another thing that lines up perfectly for Napoleon. You know, the power struggles, the ability to rise up through the ranks, not being from, you know, the royal, maybe more high noble birth that you need to be, but also this new technology has come around and he finds himself in the, one of the greatest military colleges yep. in the world, learning one of the newest technologies that have come out. Again, it's just another thing that kind of lines up for him. But again, we've talked about this many times. You have to have some luck. You have to have things fall yep. within place, but you got to take advantage of, of the the hand that's dealt to you. If you're dealt a good hand and you don't do anything with it, you're going to fall to history and nobody's going to really remember your name, but don't want to take away from what he did. But I think it's important to kind of point out there's a lot of things that are lining up perfectly for him and he's taking advantage um, the best he can yeah 100 percent. and i think you know if we it, it's such a you know and it, it makes historical analysis so fascinating because if it's just one decision to not look at artillery does he become the leader that you know that we know such to a be? good point yeah you know what i mean like what if he's like ah, i'm not really interested in artillery but i'm more interested in the more traditional avenues of of, of military strategy mm -hmm. that ultimately you know, would become outdated and ineffective as the, the landscape of warfare is changing. What impact does that have? And this is the thing about speculative history, right? It's yeah. fun. It's very interesting. Um, you know, we dabble in it a bit just by virtue of having a history podcast. But, you know, it's always interesting to think just, you know, the, the decision to kind of pivot in one direction can have such profound consequences for the rest of your life versus if he had gone another route, you know, would he have ever become what he is, you know, what we know of him today? Yeah, it's a great question like clearly he's brilliant but what if you join the navy for example and it's a completely different type of warfare maybe he stinks and he's not a very good naval commander exactly right? yeah. Like, yeah you never know yeah fun to think um, about though it is it is very fun to think about but you know he didn't he went with the, the artillery route and you know here we are today and i think you know uh, one of the early uh, like i guess theaters of warfare that he was able to really set himself apart from others was the siege of toulon and i think again paul probably to your point kind of loop back to what's going on at this time so i think to 
understand the Caesar Talon, we have to, again, kind of double down on the broader context of the counter-revolutionaries. So to your point, the French Revolution began in 1789. It, again, it marked a radical departure uh, from how France was, you know, uh, governed before then. So fundamentally, societal structures uh, like the absolute monarchy and the feudal system were abolished and replaced with these ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity. So we can, you know, there's the various phases of the revolution, you know, the radical phase that we talked about marked by the rise of the Jacobins and the, you know, I always find this name you know, quite ironically funny, the Committee of Public Safety <laughs> under Robespierre. <laughs> they saw the execution of King Louis, the Reign of Terror, where thousands were guillotined. But as a part of this, right, you have the subset of counter-revolutionaries. So these individuals and groups that were opposed to the radical changes that were coming out of the French Rep. Um, these were loyalists uh, who uh, who wanted the restoration of the monarchy, and they were devoutly religious and were alarmed by the anti-clerical views that were kind of uh, evolving and fomenting at the time. And they felt the revolution had gone too far. So, you know, they're kind of in a weird position where they're not really liking the internal uh, chaos that's happening. And there's several European monarchies at the same time outside of France that are alarmed by the radicalism of the French Revolution. So they're forming coalitions against revolutionary France, which would lead to the Revol French Revolutionary Wars. It's something that I think is worth pointing out. And we've talked about this. I can't count how many times about <laughs> and we think we just need to mention it again is the royalty in Europe it's so ingrained in all of these countries and that's just the status quo and people as we know don't like change mm -hmm. and now you see a country coming along that's not going to have a king that's related to one of the 20 other families around europe because like we've mentioned before they're all related to each other in in some capacity yeah this is a radical change for for europe we're seeing it you know in america happened and now you're going to allow it to happen in france and now if i'm the habsburg empire or i'm the british empire or i'm one of these kings and one of these Bavarian or German states, I'm freaking out a little bit because if I'm not doing a good job of ruling, I can always lean back on my nobility and my royalty and I'm the rightful king and all these sort of things. But now if revolution is normalized, A, that brings a lot of disorder, but also my power is threatened. And so you can see that's why so many of these countries mm -hmm. are freaking out a little bit saying we can't, we have to destroy this rebellion, put the king back on the throne in France, and keep everything the way it is because going to potentially come to my front door and you have power the biggest thing you're always scared of is losing power 100%. so this is just yeah it makes total sense why these these wars happen but you know that's just you know people don't like change people don't like disorder and war breaks out as a result and it's funny because it's it's always the little guys who get you know feel it it's the civilians who are, who are going to place the brunt of it but it's really yep. just you know kings and queens who are you know, at each other's throats for whatever reason. But in this case, they're somewhat unified, which is very, very rare for, for Europe at this time to see kings and queens being like, yeah, there's a, a united cause that we should go against in this revolutionary France. It's It almost is kind of an unprecedented time as well for all of these European powers. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful reality that they're trying to contend with, right? Like, how do you fight an idea that is spreading like wildfire in continental America at this point? Um, which is ironically taking ideas from France, you know, embedding them in their own ideology. And then it's kind of going backwards with this like feedback loop to, to reinvigorate the revolutionary ideas that, you know, initiate originally uh, originated in France. And it's not like the it, French can say it's not com like they didn't see it coming. It's like, well, of yeah, course exactly. it's, it's, you guys wrote it's happening it. down the street, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and, and I think that, that that's a part of the complexity, but also some of, 
like the really interesting part about this time in history. So if we're looking at, you know, Toulon's significance. So again, France is both internally and externally besieged at this point. There's external pressures from the first coalition, and we'll get into the coalitions, which essentially is just uh, the alignment of different European powers to fight against revolutionary France. So you have powers like Britain, Prussia, Spain, Austria, which sought to curb the revolution. And internally, the Young Republic is faced with threats from areas of resistance uh, that are vehemently against the revolution. So Toulon's revolt was particularly significant because of its naval base, making it a strategic location. Uh, so Toulon royalists had actually invited British intervention, which was a major counter-revolutionary move. Uh, the revolt wasn't really an isolated event, but there were other uprisings uh, you know, across the region. Uh, but Napoleon Napoleon, as a young military, uh, young artillery officer of, of, I think he was 24 at this point, was tasked with providing artillery support for the revolutionary forces. He showed his military prowess by placing artillery batteries at strategic positions overlooking the harbor at the British fleets, which played a pivotal role in recapturing the city. And as a result of this, I think, you know, his significant contributions and strategic decisions during the siege, he was promoted to brigadier general following uh, being able to, to counter defend against the invading British troops. I think that's the way it should be and probably wasn't for such a long time as you show you can do it on the battlefield. Here's command of your own army. Again, like we have to keep saying like that wouldn't have happened 100 years ago just because yep, no he wasn't, you know, some sort of royal this or duke of this or whatever it might have been. He's just a guy who's got some royalty to him. So I'm sure that makes it a little bit easier. But again, the revolutionaries are they don't care. They claim they don't care, but they don't care that he's, you know, not from this royal blood. They can tell he's got talent. And of course, he's pro-revolution or at least says he's pro-revolution. Yeah, um, yeah. So that that also helps, which is weird because it's like he's not part of the nobility, but he's part of an ideology which is now in power. So that helps him. But if he was against that ideology and he was a very good general, <laughs> no chance he was getting that promotion. Well, I think it's like, a, a, you know, as you were speaking, this doc kind of came to me, which is this 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 probably unintended alignment of the revolutionary ideals with his own ambition and drive of someone who doesn't come from a traditional no noble family, right? If we're talking about ideas like equality, liberty, and fraternity, meritocracy kind of fits into those buckets. And I think, you know, being as driven and ambitious as he was, he's able through his own diligence and merit like to kind of rise up in the ranks of the military. So it, it's interesting, like kind of the alignment of, of the ideological tenets of the French Revolution and some of his own personal characteristics. So we can switch. Uh, we like, So again, um, there's a lot of campaigns that he runs, uh, militarily speaking, and we won't get into any great details. Uh, on them in this particular episode, but there's the Italian campaign, uh, which takes place from 1796 to 1797. Again, this is military operations in which the French Revolutionary Army under Napoleon's leadership faced off against the armies of the Habsburg monarchy and their allies. This campaign truly showed Napoleon's military genius and it's notable for a series of brilliant victories against Austria. So this campaign was a part of the larger war of the First Coalition, in which, again, French, uh, the Republic battled against the coalition of the European monarchies. So Napoleon took command of the French army of Italy in 1796. He's 26 at the time. The army is ill-equipped and demoralized, but Napoleon is quickly installed to, to kind of, you know, provide discipline and confidence within the team. Uh, for his his battle strategy, Napoleon uh, was able to kind of prevent the two Austrian armies to link up, and he was able to move swiftly, forcing the enemies to react to his maneuvers versus being able to proactively engage him. So there's a, a couple of you know notable battles, and we'll just kind of glaze over them quickly uh, for just 
so we don't get too too in the details. But there's the Battle of Montenot uh, in 1796. This is his first significant victory in the campaign, which allowed him to split the Austrian and Sardinian forces. There's the Battle of uh, Rivoli in January of 1797. This is probably perhaps the most definitive battle of the campaign, where the French decisively defeated the Austrians. This led to the Treaty of Campo Formio in 1797. This marked the end of the campaign. Austria recognized French control of the of most of northern Italy and Belgium, and exchange the Republic of Venice's territories were divided between Austria and France, marking the end of the thousand-year-old Venetian Republic. That's the crazy part, I think, with the you, like you just said at the end there. Bit, right? Like, yeah. Thousand, I, I glazed over it pretty quickly, but thousand-year-old Venetian Republic. <laughs> well, we were talking about this offline, and I was flipping through a bunch of his battles, and I remember I said to you, like, we had just done two episodes on the um, 1500s in Florence and the Italian city-states, and you keep hearing about this great Republic of Venice. And then I was, I never really realized what happened to it I, I thought maybe just got amalgamated into italy at one point but you're reading this and it just like you'll read the end of this battle and it just says results to destruction and disso- disillusionment of the republic of venice which has been around for a thousand years and you continue to see this he'll win another battle and it's like the end of the holy roman empire yeah, or we'll, the we'll end of there. this <laughs> the end. and it's just like okay i get it he's he's not but the thing that i think is so that sits with me so much is a lot of times you see these battles happen somebody wins you know the empire falls or the republic falls but then napoleon loses power something else happens and they come back it's the fact that those changes stick and they actually don't come back tells me that the reforms and everything that he's putting into play are really setting foot and creating something new a lot of the time out of the areas that he's conquered it's not just defaulting back to what it was before in a business as usual there's actually a profound change alongside the social movements that are happening but now Somebody's come in, kicked out the old leadership, created a power vacuum, and now something new is being created as a result. Yeah, and I think again, there's his a like he's able to do it so swiftly and quickly, right? And again, I think his military prowess and leadership here is undeniable, right? Strategically speaking, you know, at a high level, he's able to divide and conquer quickly, um, but he's able to consolidate just as fast if he needs to. Um, he's super swift in terms of how he's able to mobilize his forces. And again, we go back to his training at, at the military college, his the use of mass artillery, not just in sieges, but as kind of these mobile forces in battle, which were able to concentrate firepower to a devastating effect was critical in his ability to to win these battles. And again, I think the psychological aspects of war as well, right? And uh, I think we get into this a bit, but this is something that wasn't necessarily obvious to me, but it makes sense the more I read about it, which, you know, as a, as a leader, not just as a strategic genius, you're a leader of men. And there's a psychological aspect there. Um, and he's often referred to as a kind of, you know, genius propagandist, but he's able to promise his soldiers, you know, glory. Uh, you know, he's often leading from the front. He's able to instill this kind of fervor and dedication to his troops. So he's obviously, you know, a very skilled, articulate communicator. And I don't think we've really touched on a leader who hasn't had those those skill sets. Yeah, I think it's a huge, huge point. Like you hear stories of him just sitting with regular everyday troops and just talking to them the night before a battle, which, again, was unheard of at the time. But even just to his PR, um, I have a quote here that says, one of his greatest tactical assets as a leader would be his ability to cement his popularity through plausibly plausible lies skillfully delivered to a public that was ready to believe him. So we have to remember with a lot of these wars, he's sending back information very skillfully changed where if he won a battle, sure, he won it. 
but he crushed the enemy. He destroyed the enemy. Yes. He routed the enemy. Yep. Even if he didn't, if it was a stalemate, he he'll find a way to make it a victory. If he lost the battle, he found a way to you know make, put his spin on it. He even had um, an artist that would follow him around and would paint these great photos. And a lot of the great pictures you see of Napoleon, like him on a horse doing a bunch of different things, these aren't obviously photographs that are taken of exactly <laughs> what was happening. Right? This is designed in a sense of I'm going to send these back to France and I'm going to show people like you know look at me the majestic leader on the white horse yep. and you know this very classic great general kind of trope that's a huge huge part of what he's doing he's not just winning battles he's winning the hearts and minds of the people back home through this pr kind of industrial complex for lack of a better term but then he's also selling himself to his soldiers because the morale like you were saying was very very low you got to find a way to get this get these people to want to fight for you to fight for their country and you know being able to have a leader that they trust but also have the promise of riches and glory and all of yep. these sort of things it goes a long way and is, is one of the reasons why when he has these loyal french troops with him from the early days he's able to be so successful early on yeah 100 percent. there's a duality to it right like there is the military leader but there's also to be able to play the game of optics really well um both domestically and amongst your troops and i think you know, he's able to do that very very skillfully um so if we look at the italian campaign you know i think it's an early demonstration of his military genius it sets him on this path for greater power within france it also kind of redefines european warfare it's emphasizing this kind of approach on maneuver and speed over linear tactics that were you know kind of uh, legacy tactics of the past and it you know begins to showcase you know some of the strategies and methods that would become hallmarks in the larger european conflicts to come and then we can kind of move to the egyptian campaigns which i think is his first real i call them setbacks i think setbacks would probably be appropriate in terms of his military career so in 1798 seeking to disrupt british trade routes and threaten british india <clears throat> napoleon embarks on the egyptian campaign this is a significant expedition uh, for the French Revolutionary Wars. And it showcased one of his strategic brilliance on land, but it also resulted in a major naval setback. So the strategic goal, you know, on a whole was to conquer Egypt. Napoleon aimed to disrupt the British naval dominance and trade routes in India. And it was also season, seen as an opportunity to spread the ideals of the French Revolution and undermine British influence in the region. So after, you know, departing France with a large fleet and army, Napoleon swiftly captures Malta and then Alexandria in Egypt. His troops are then his troops are then defeated. They defeat the Malmic rulers of the of the Egypt at the Battle of the Pyramids, and they essentially take control of the Nile Delta. So after the success of the that battle, Napoleon's fleets anchored in the Abukir Bay near Alexandria. The British Royal Navy under Admiral Nelson had been pursuit of Na Napoleon's fleet for weeks at this time. So essentially, the Battle of the Nile takes place, and it's a catastrophic defeat for the French and a major victory battle, a uh, major victory for the British. But it essentially reaffirms what, you know, many knew at the time and what we know today is that the British naval's, uh, you know, power is definitely the most supreme uh, in, in, in Europe at the time. And it left Napoleon's expeditionary forces pretty isolated and defeated. I think out of what, th yeah, there's 13 ships that were sent in the fleet. 11 were captured or destroyed. Only two frigates and two smaller vessels escaped. And it left, you know, Napoleon's army stranded in Egypt and cut off from reinforcements and resupply from France. And the one thing I think to point out here is they're not just destroyed by any old British admiral. This is, you know, Nelson is, you could almost say the Napoleon of the sea at the time. And this is... Mm -hmm. 
again, we'll get into Napoleon has these grand plans to invade England, but he can't because the Royal Navy is so powerful and Nelson is such a brilliant naval commander that France just continuously gets their butt kicked in mm-hmm. the sea, despite the fact they are the cream of the crop when it comes to land battles. But again, it's you know it's not quite the, the air, sea, and, and land battle yet, but you definitely have this air and land yep portions to to warfare and napoleon is the king of one nelson is the king of the other and everything kind of comes together but to this point like you're in egypt it's pretty long walk to walk through hostile ottoman territory all the way back to france it's yeah so you need you need your ships and the british are smart if they can strand napoleon and in egypt that's going to be a huge huge victory and creates just so many opportunities for them to start harassing french troops in other places where you have this huge army trapped in hostile territory. Yeah, uh, totally. And I think it's one of the major setbacks early in his career, right? But I think he's still able to kind of bounce back pretty well from it. So after the Egyptian campaign, he returns to France and he finds, you know, France riddled with internal strife. There's financial crises and political instability. So obviously, you know, this is a very young republic still at the time. They are still kind of trying to find their footing on how to best govern and operate as this young republic. So this is where we can quickly talk about the Brumaire coup. So this essentially leads to the first consul of France, which ends the French Revolution. So a bit of a prelude. So there is dissatisfaction with the directory, which is pretty widespread across France. There's economic uh, military difficulties, there's military setbacks that just occurred. There's fears of loyalist resurgence, which created desire for a stronger centralized leadership. And, you know, Napoleon, having his reputation as a military hero, positioned him very well to be this kind of potential savior of the Republic. So the coup planned by Napoleon, he was he collaborated with key political figures, particularly, I believe it's uh, Emmanuel Joseph Saiz, who's a member of the directory, and his brother Lucien, who's president of the Council of 500. They plan to overthrow the directory and replace it with with a new form of government. So I believe on the morning of the coup, members of the legislative councils were escorted to the Chateau de Saint-Cloud, and supposedly they were told it was for their safety due to a, you know, uh, Jacobin plot. And was in reality, the, the public of done. the public safety council telling yeah. them that this was for their safety. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but in reality, it was to distance them from their political bases and keep them isolated. So that same day, Napoleon uh, addresses the council of agents, justifying the need for a new government structure. While he faced opposition, the majority were supportive, were compliant. And then on November 10th, Napoleon faced the council of 500. The session became pretty tumultuous with some members challenging Napoleon. Lucien, uh, his brother, fearing for his brother's safety, called in the troops to disperse the council. Ultimately, the directory was dissolved, and in its place, the consulate was established. Initially, it was a three-man executive body with Napoleon, Saiz, and Robert Ducos as consuls. However, Napoleon kind of was able to you know, become the dominant figure within the three, and by the constitution of uh, of the year, I think it was in December 1799, he became the first consul of France, effectively placing him in control of the French government. So it's funny, the word consul that comes directly from rome in the ancient yep. roman empire and yep. then or the roman republic and then eventually the there was the triumvirate of caesar mark antony and pompey yep. who which again it turned into julius caesar becoming dictator and it's just funny because he knows the history the playbook is essentially exactly the same but it's also the fact that he can't call himself king because yep. they've just deposed the king which is exactly what happened in rome they basically had kings but 
they called them emperors or they, you know, then they had their consuls as well. So yeah, he's following a very, very similar trajectory. And again, there is still, we've talked about with the Renaissance, this love for the ancients and almost, yep. you know, wanting to rebuild a lot of these great um, Roman and Greek empires. But I just find it funny how the very, very specific use of words there are of direct callback to we're just like the romans and look how great everything worked out there um we want to do the same thing here i think it's it's the sentiment that if you know you control the uh control the language you control the conversation right absolutely yeah and you know with the establishment of the consulate um i think historically many historians kind of view it as the end of the french revolution and you know while there's still kind of revolutionary principles like equality before the law maintained many of the most more radical elements were discarded and more moderated so you know you're saying you know you're seeing less of the guillotine i imagine um as, as first consul he initiates a series of reforms known as the napoleonic code which essentially systemized uh french law he reformed the economy the education system uh government administration you know just continuing to solidify his control over the nation so i think we should double down a little bit on, on that yep. napoleon code so i just did a little bit of research on that and i i saw a lot of people saying like modern law in a sense is built a lot upon this Napoleon Code. Um, a lot of American lawmakers were using this as kind of playbooks to draw up a lot of laws as the United States was growing. And so there's a lot of just interesting things that kind of come up um, with within this you know set of laws. So it's, it's really, I guess, when he takes over, there's this confusion of you know feudal laws, royal laws, church laws, old Roman laws that are just kind of existing all over France and all over Europe. And so he just wants to have this single set of laws of if you're from one part of the French Empire to another part of the French Empire, everybody's kind of under the same set of guidelines. Mm-hmm. And so he sets out a commission to build out all of these laws, and it really eliminates any feudal or royal privilege privileges in favor of citizens to be equal before the law, which we talked about um, before when we talked about George Washington and how equal, equal rights for people is incredibly rare and almost non-existent. But of course, there's it's not for everybody. It's mostly just men <laughs> at this point. But again, that's still a huge step in the right direction because for yeah. a long time, it was only a, um, a subset. But it included things like freedom of speech, freedom to worship, um, freedom to have a public trial by jury, which is a very big change change it allowed individuals to choose their own occupation which i didn't really realize was a thing like you were told hey you just got to do this a lot of times you're born into your lord tells you what you need to do you have to do it so people can kind of make their own way but there was a couple things where there was no worker organizations allowed so unions were banned um and then the employer's word was always taken over the word of the employee so steps in the right direction but you can still see that there's a lot of work to do until you get to a more modern sense of how things are um he even had a lot of things to do with the rights of property so he put in a law where every property holder has the right to enjoy and to dispose of one's property in the most absolute fashion so basically (laughs) you have the right to enjoy your property sit down out sit outside on a weekend and and have a glass of wine but if you want to sell it for whatever reason you have the right to do so it also though permitted divorce for the first time on the grounds of adultery, cruelty, criminal conviction, or mutual agreement between the spouses and the partners and their parents. So this was huge, right? Because for a lot of women, especially you could have an abusive husband who, you know, is doing a bunch of illegal things or, you know, very, very cruel in the household, but under the church's laws, you can never get divorced. So this changed things. However, again, it was still very male focused. So it definitely favored the husband. You know, the, he could get a divorce if his wife committed one act of adultery anywhere. However, a wife could secure a, um, a divorce on grounds of adultery only if her husband committed the act 
within the family home. So he could go out and do what he needs to do. But if he brings it home, he's in trouble where the woman can't do anything. Um, But it did say, however, the husband owes the protection to his wife and the wife owes obedience to her husband. So there's definitely progress towards women's rights here. You can start to see in some extreme cases, but at the end of the day, the husband is still, the wife is almost, I would say property, but really is, is the the right of her life is still under the rights of the husband. But they also have thrown in the language where the husband must protect the wife. And if he's not doing that, there are grounds for divorce and separation. Like if he's abusive, he's not protecting his wife. Therefore, you now have those rights, which is, again, it's baby steps in, in throughout history. Nothing's perfect, but you can see a lot of great steps taken towards, you know, more equality for women and for regular people um, outside of what was coming before this. You know, we're talking late 70s hundreds, early 1800s right. at this point, right? Like that's pretty yeah. progressive for that period. Like mm-hmm. it, it is quite, it almost has this modern zeal to it yeah. in terms of uh, how he's kind of, you know, sanctifying these laws and, mm-hmm. and regulations. So like slavery yeah, is still legal, right? So this yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. this like, is not like everything's great and they're just no. really behind. This is very, very progressive for the time. And I think that's a very powerful sentiment, right? And again, if we look back to the, you know, not just him as a person, his characteristics of, you know, his, obviously he's, 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 uh, he's quite studious, he's intelligent, he's driven, he, he loves learning. And again, you kind of correlate that with the ideals of the French Revolution. It makes sense, right? This kind of progressive outlook on supporting society in making one step in the right direction of having more equality and fraternity. So I think we could probably pivot to his emperorship at this point, Paul, um, you know, after looking at his uh, ascendancy to the first consul, he, you know, he implements the Napoleonic Code, he positions himself as the first consul uh, to kind of, you know, solidify more autocratic power. And in 1802, he becomes consul for life. (laughs) And by 1804, he declared himself Emperor Napoleon I of the French. Um, Again, I think it's obviously a very defining moment in French history. It's marking the transition from revolutionary chaos to Napoleonic order and eventually empire. And his rise to power through this event showcased, I think, you know, without a doubt, his political savvy and ability to capitalize on prevailing national sentiments. One thing too to point out here is part of the reason he goes down this line of needing to be emperor. And then he also passes laws where he essentially becomes a king where his family will take over after he dies. And I think a lot of that comes from assassination attempts, rumors, people trying to get at his throat, because if Napoleon dies, our vacuum opens wide up, someone else is going to take power. And so he tries to establish this part of order. And that's one thing we really haven't doubled down with on Napoleon is he is obsessed with order. He hates Mm -hmm. chaos. He hates as much as he loved the revolution for what it believed in. He hated the chaos. And so you can start to see here where him as that single figurehead with his son as the eventual successor to him sets in place this order and peaceful transfer of power in his eyes. And so, yes, we can look at him. He's absolutely a dictator. He's absolutely committed a coup to take over. (laughs) However, if he didn't, France may very easily fall back into ruin. The royals may come back in and we may just be back to where we started before. Not that him being emperor and having his son just take over is much different than the royals coming back in. But in his eyes, that's a, you know, going back to a weaker form of what France used to be. And he's seeing this now as a more stronger, unified France that, you know, under his guise and leadership um, 
is going to, you know, new levels. No, and, and I agree. And I think, like, historically speaking, there's justification here for this idea of an empire. It wasn't new uh, to France. And it did touch on many of the concerns that the population and, and, and leadership had at the time, which is one, stability. Uh, Napoleon and his supporters argued that the empire would ensure stability and protect the gains of the revolution against both internal and external threats. There's a historical precedence for it. Uh, the concept of French empire was not new, and the title you know, sought to evoke the grandeur of, of past empires, Paul, which is something that we keep kind of you know, looping back to, particularly of the Roman Empire. And then there are the threats of assassination and royalist plots, uh, plots to actually you know, kill Napoleon, and that, that fear of the power vacuum. Uh, you could potentially see the return of the Bourbons, which presented a justification for a hereditary system of governance. And, and it's interesting Interesting that you know there's there's a very deeply embedded contradiction there, but taking into consideration with what else he's done, it seems a bit more um, you know amenable for for the country. I, I thought this was interesting as well about his coronation ceremony. Um, so the coronation was obviously a grand affair uh, designed to emphasize both the like continuity with France's royal past and the beginning of the empire. Uh, but instead of having the Pope crown him, Napoleon took the crown and placed it on his own head, symbolizing that his authority was derived from the will of the people and his own achievements, not divine right. He certainly loved the spectacle, that guy. Oh, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, could it get any better? Like, the Pope, the, you know, the vicar of Christ on earth, probably the most revered man in the whole Catholic world, and you're snatching the crown from him and putting it on your own head. It's, um, it just, again, it's, it's Napoleon, right? It's, he's, he's a fan of the spectacle he has his pr to make him seem almost godlike and otherworldly he never places the term god on his head but he really brings that kind of vibe to everything that he does and you know there's that beautiful painting of him putting the crown on his head and it's really yeah. become a defining moment of that time and yeah he's it's almost like i you really are lost for words i'm like you know he did yeah. what he grabbed it from the from who <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It just goes to show you, right? Like those kind of ideological tenets, you know, he is not deriving his power. And the divine right, like the idea of divine right is so tied to the absolute monarchy. You can sense that this kind of pivot that's occurring from the revolution to where he is now. Um, although I would argue that the semantics that he's using in terms of the empire versus the monarchy and being consul for life, <laughs> you know, is, is, you know is, is a bit contradictory. But I think in the ways that it really matters to the population, he's able to pinpoint those 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 opportunities to just reinforce how different it actually is versus, you know, the contradictions that you and I are discussing right now, which might seem like, yeah, it's different, but there are quite a lot of similarities still across what was displaced prior to the French Rev. For sure. And you have to put yourself in the shoes of an everyday French citizen. You've just seen decades of violence and insane greed from the royalty and incompetence as well like king louis was was not a smart guy in terms yeah. of you know he was he maybe had he knew what he needed to do but he just was not a good leader i think is maybe a better way to put it and now you have someone who's charismatic who's actually quite funny apparently and i've got a, a quote here someone was saying that he actually had a very good sense of humor and was able to make jokes about basically any situation like even when they're facing defeat in battle he's cracking jokes about you know what's going on and just like kind of lighten the mood a little bit and mm -hmm. i think after years and years of violence and blood and death and disease and famine you got to have a sense of humor i think to be successful and he has that um and even on top of that like there's some other things that i was just looking at that it's just about him himself like of course he's ambitious and we've talked about that um but even like his ability to be 
a great administrator. He had a huge capacity, apparently, for statistical data. Like he could just take in a lot of information. And he also apparently had a near photographic memory. So he's able to just oh, wow. compartmentalize okay. all of these ideas have insane intention to detail. And for a lot of people, it was, you know, almost like an unnatural ability that they didn't see. Mm -hmm. So I think when you kind of, to bring this kind of back around to your point of, you know, him kind of towing the line between emperor and king and saying what the people want to say, he's incredibly smart. He's brilliant. He's got this charisma and he's exactly what the French people need. They need competence really badly. They need a leader who can take them out of the gutter which he uses actually as many times as, you know, taking France out of the gutter yep. and bringing it back. And again, the the scene is set for someone to do that. And it's, yeah, it's a perfect kind of setup for him. So I think I shared the quote with you offline uh, about the gutter reference, but I'll, I'll repeat it here for our listeners because I think it's very powerful. And, you know, obviously there's the contradiction here that we're, that we're kind of touching on right now. But uh, in a letter, he writes, I did not usurp the crown. I found it in the gutter and I picked it up with my sword and it was the people, the people who put it on my head. He who saves a nation violates no law. Wow. There you go. That's just his mindset of, yeah. well, I may be a dictator, but look where France is. Who's going to fix it? If it's not me, it's not going to be anybody. And I can't really blame him for that because, look, we all have this in our head of Napoleon the dictator. And when we think of dictators, we think of evil men, ambitious men who are willing to do anything at the hands of their people, which let's not take it away. He absolutely does. And I think something we didn't forgot to mention when he leaves Egypt, he leaves thousands of French troops stranded. I think it was, it may have been in Syria, kind of around that area, because he had no way to get back. He was able to kind of sneak away. And so in that case, he talks about how much he loves his troops, but he also does abandon them. But at the same time, in his mind, well, if I don't get back to France and I die out here, my country is going to get swallowed up by these European powers or the royals are going to take over. The people are going to, and it's just this, it's a, it needs you have to be a massive narcissist to be able to think some of these things but then again we just mentioned all these things he has the talent to do so and i almost think of like yeah right like he's he's executing on it and he's delivering Mm -hmm. which is i think you know half the battle you can you can say that you're going to do all these things you're going to actually you know there's a difference between talking it and doing it and Mm -hmm. he's able to not only articulate his his vision for france but you know he's implementing reforms that are solidifying and providing the stability that france needs at this time yeah and i think one other thing that just to mention just kind of on his genius a little bit here is i've looked into about 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 his writing and how much he liked to write and i found um something that was talking about a publication of his letters and they found a bunch of letters after he died and they were published he wrote there's 30 33 letters that showed he averaged about 15 a day when he was in power and they're just such minute little things like he's a crazy micromanager so some of the things that are in these letters are a prefect a prefect of a department would be instructed to stop taking his young mistress to the opera like that's a letter he writes just (laughs) it's a bad look you shouldn't be doing that um an obscure country um an obscure county priest would be reprimanded for giving a bad sermon on Napoleon's birthday. Like, hey, it was my birthday. This is supposed to be a great day. And you did a very <laughs> you know, mean thing. Um, a corporal who was, he basically wrote a letter to a corporal and said, hey, you've been seen drinking too much. Knock it off. He did some things where, yeah, just like he just was obsessive, just like little things. Like, why are you writing to corporals telling them to stop drinking? Like, usually you rely on your generals and your, and your colonels and all these sort of things to do this. But you can just see the level of detail 
hill that he gets to. But then on top of that, he's known for his incredible hard work and forward thinking and all these sort of things. And I didn't realize this, but he apparently loved to meditate um, a great deal. And so he wrote, he told one of his ministers that he says, I'm always working and I meditate in a great detail. He says, quote, if I appear always ready to answer for everything and to meet everything, sorry, to meet everything, to answer for everything and meet everything, it's because before entering into any undertaking, I have meditated for a long time and have foreseen what might happen. It's not genius which reveals to me suddenly and secretly what I have to do or in any circumstance unexpected by other people. It's reflection and meditation. Wow, that just, yeah, the, the more I learn about him, the more intriguing he is as of a human. Like, I didn't know, like, was, you said, you said, you said 15 letters a day he yep. was averaging on top yeah. of everything else that he's doing. He's making time to write details about the most minute things that more or less probably don't have much of an impact on his day-to-day function but he's taking the time out of his day to do that uh, yeah that's incredible he just it shows the brain power right he's able yes. to think about so many things and we'll get into it next week where we talk about or next time about his military genius and they say with him like you know, chess master is such an overused kind of word for this but he really was he's able to look at what's going on and he's able to envision all the different moves that might happen what the enemy is going to do or in this case what his political rivals are going to do sure, or, yeah. or how the economy is going to react to a decision he makes and then even on top of that he's able to just almost put a picture in his head and think okay if i move this army over here they're going to react okay i'm going to make that order 20 minutes later, he comes back. Okay, it's been 20 minutes. What do I think is happening? Well, um, my reports are telling me that, you know, the rear guard has fallen or, you know, the they're doing well on this side or they're getting pushed back here. Okay, well, that means this is going to happen. So if I move these guys over, it's just it's a continuous, continuous cycle. And he's able to juggle, um, you know, a million different things um, at the same time. But just before we continue, Richie, I'm just looking at the time here and I realize this <laughs> is exactly, I, I think we knew this was going to happen. We're, yes. yeah. we're not quite to the end of his story yet. And we're, we're, well over the hour mark at this point. So I'm thinking maybe we can talk a bit more about him as a person and kind of wrap up that story. And then maybe we'll come back next week and we'll talk a bit more about him as the as an emperor and kind of up to his end of his life. And then we'll spend a little yep. bit of time getting into his military genius and all the all the things that he was up to and why he, you know, holds the status of maybe the greatest, you know, general of all time. Yeah, we'll try to, yeah, I, I totally agree. I had a feeling this was going to happen as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, again, going into it green, I didn't expect that we would need this much time, but he has, you know, he's lived probably one of the more interesting lives that I've read about. And I think he immediately became one of the more dynamic leaders that we've covered in this, you know, in the series of episodes that we've done. He's definitely up there for me. Um, but we'll try to kind of get through the latter half of this portion pretty quickly and i think in next week's uh, in the next episode we'll double down on mm-hmm. the latter, latter half of his life and some of the battles that he goes through you know we're gonna have to graze over the napoleonic wars pretty quickly <laughs> yeah um, so this is you know the napoleonic wars span from 1803 to 1815 there are a series of interconnected conflicts just like everything else that's going on at this point in time um that saw napoleonic france and its allies fighting against a series of you know other coalitions that were primarily led by britain austria prussia russia and spain um, you know, and we'll double down on that in, in the next episode. But ultimately, the, the wars profoundly reshaped Europe. They spread the ideas of the French Revolution. They redrew the map of Europe and they set the stage uh, for the concert of Europe and the balance of power put 
power politics for the remainder of the 19th century. The conflicts also demonstrated the evolution of warfare, which, you know, we've talked about a bit, but I think in, in, in our next episode, we'll really get into the nitty gritty details of that. Um, it showcases the rise of nationalism, large scale conscription and the integration of logistics and supply chains into strategic planning. And quickly, um, you know, Napoleon does suffer some defeats in the Napoleonic Wars at the tail end uh, of the campaign. And this is where he's exiled to Elba. And Elba is is an island that is it off the coast of I just had this it's here. off the coast of Italy. So if you're it's like a stone's throw away from Florence. So it's it's funny. You may be saying to yourself, oh, OK, well, Napoleon's defeated. He's exiled to Elba. Why put him there? And I, that was exactly the British were very anti putting him in Elba because it was so close to to Italy. And what, what do we think is going to happen there? You, you know, ambitious Napoleon with a devout following. He's very close to France. <laughs> There's apparently the, apparently the commander that was supposed to be watching over him had a mistress in Florence. And so he just waited conveniently for this commander to go to Florence <laughs> to see his mistress. And then he came back and Napoleon was gone. Who, who would have thought, right? Oh man, that's hilarious. Yeah. So he's, he's exiled to this very small island in the Mediterranean. He lives there about, for about 10 months. Uh, he even institutes reforms there on the island. He designed a new flag for it. Um, but he was obviously keenly connected about the events that are taking place in France and Europe. Um, so he returns from Elba. There's dissatisfaction with the Bourbon monarchy that's been restored in the form of King Louis the, uh, I believe this, the 18th, and other factors made France ripe for Napoleon's return. So he escapes, he lands in France, and he begins his journey to Paris. This period is known as uh, the Hundred Days. So as he advances, the army sent to stop him actually joins his cause. And, and by March, he's back in power in France, uh, leading to a renewed conflict with the European powers, and this eventually culminates in the Battle of Waterloo. And you know that's going to be, I think, a, a main component of our discussion for next uh, for our next episode. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into that because I think just reading a bit of the tactics and you know his failures in Russia and him meeting Wellington at Waterloo, and I saw a great comparison with this. They said this was like everybody knew how brilliant Wellington was and or and how brilliant Napoleon was. They said this was like a Super Bowl and like it's not it's a terrible comparison but it was these two greats meeting for this stage really a stadium like you know this just everybody coming together and just two of the best going at it and we'll see you know who comes out on top obviously it's not the same because they're not all playing by the same rules and, and all these sort of things but that is the stage that was really set and again in a world where there's no super athletes these were the athletes of the time and people are talking about you know who's the greatest general and what's going to happen in this battle because you you know it's coming it's not like they just ran into each other and we're like oh we're yeah, gonna have a yeah. we're gonna have a battle they knew they were gonna meet somewhere and sure enough it was near a little little town called waterloo these military titans essentially right about to, to about to face off um so hopefully this isn't a spoiler so he's defeated at the battle of waterloo uh again we'll get into this but after his defeat at the battle of waterloo he is then again exiled to an even more remote island <laughs> of saint helena in the south atlantic which is you know in between africa and south america we are much farther away uh, than El the island of Elba. And, you know, there he essentially spends the rest of his life. You know, the former emperor, he's accommodated at, at what's called the Longwood House. It's this damp, somewhat unsuitable place for him to live. He's even accompanied by, you know, a small group of loyal followers, including uh, a general um, that's appointed by Sir Hudson Lowe as the governor of the island and Napoleon's jailer, who obviously they had, you know, a, a pretty fraught relationship over the restrictions that were placed on him at the time. Um, and ultimately, he passes away on May 5th, 1821. Uh, the cause of his death 
has been a topic of debate, but I think most historians think it was stomach cancer because his father had died of the same disease. His remains were buried at St. Helena, but in 1840, they were exhumed and returned to France in a grand ceremony. His final resting place is in Paris uh, at a monument uh, for France's uh, military history. And, you know, this is kind of the final chapter in the tumultuous life of what, you know, I think we could confidently say is one of history's most notable figures. Uh, while far from like the grandeur and power of his imperial days, his influence continued to resonate throughout Europe and the world, both in terms of like the Napoleonic Code and obviously the geopolitical changes he brought upon by his conquests. Yeah, it's quite the life. And I know we breezed over a bunch of it, but <laughs> if, which is, again, we've already talked so much about him today, but there's a couple of things on St. Helena that I found funny. They were paranoid that he was going to escape and go to... There was actually a plot to kidnap him from St. Helena and bring him to South America and appoint him like emperor of South America as it was still... And to basically free them from Spanish and Portuguese rule and some silly plot. And so the British um, commander that was in charge of protecting um, or keeping Napoleon on the island, he was so paranoid that there was... I think they banned Napoleon from gardening at one point because he just liked to garden because they were worried that if he was... He would plant certain flowers with certain colors that that would be a way for him to send secret messages to people oh, like they were at like extra level but they, you may be asking yourself point. why didn't they just kill him why didn't they just execute say, yeah, him yeah, yeah. easy out and, right <laughs> right and i think there the austrians i think were pushing for him to be executed but i think since the british kind of took control at waterloo wellington was the main he was kind of like the dwight eisenhower of the allies at that point of the coalition he's the you know he's kind of the commander-in-chief and they have a lot of respect for each other wellington and, yep. and napoleon they they don't they're enemies on the battlefield but they're not enemies in their personal lives where many many men are dying at their hands but they don't see it as you know they understand like if but also it sets a precedent i think is what i'm trying to get like if you start murdering generals who get captured or murdering royal people yep what happens when it comes the other way so yeah, he is on that island for a long time and it must have just been kind of a, a sad end to his life because again he went on elba and he's pushing reforms through and doing all of these things where he's kind of just on this sad rock in the middle of the atlantic and just forced to live out his days and hear what's happening back to back in his country and never able to leave it's it is a sad end to his life but also it could have been a lot worse he he could have been executed he could have been yep. thrown in a dungeon to rot it's somewhat of a, a humble but still noble end to an unbelievable life. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And the fact that his body was exhumed and brought back to Paris after yeah. the fact, right? Like, I think that really, for me, is such a, it almost gave me goosebumps because it just mm -hmm. showcases the the power and impact that this one person had on, you know, modernizing a country that exists today. Yeah, ex I think that's the perfect way to put it. And I just have maybe a good quote here from a historian on Napoleon, maybe to just... Uh, kind of help us end this this section off so <laughs> this historian said napoleon represented the enlightenment on horseback his letters show a charm humor and capacity for candid self-appraisal he could lose his temper volcanically so on occasion but usually with some cause above all he was no totalitarian he had no interest in controlling every aspect of his subject's life of course there were great costs like much of the rest of europe of the day napoleon employed censorship and a secret police the power he seemingly to give to the french people a political voice was r regularly rigged so rigged elections and stuff like that sure. or yeah. you know he's had a lot of control and there was a great cost in lives so there's a great cost of civil liberties and 
human life. But at the end of the day, he let people live their lives more so than maybe they would have had in the past. The cost is really great, but I think it does set in motion. It pushes the enlightenment forward. It pushes yep. forward this, you know, getting away from the old ways of doing things and just kind of set the stage for, you know, maybe the next hundred years starting to move into the right direction, a lot of scientific discovery, all of those sort of things. And so I think from a legacy perspective, that's, you know, I think a great way to put it of, yeah, he's, he's a lot of people had to die, unfortunately, but there was just no order. And he was able to kind of bring that order together yep. and set things in motion for a much better future than probably would have existed if he didn't come around. Yep. 100%. Yep. Awesome. All right. So yeah, we'll be back next time where we'll we'll get into a little bit more about Napoleon and specifically around the Napoleonic Wars, his military campaigns. But um, yeah, I think this was a really good one. And um, yeah, I'm excited to talk more about Napoleon next time. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the History in Motion podcast. If you enjoyed our journey through time, please subscribe, rate us, and share the podcast with friends. Your support helps keep history alive. Until next time.